Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with coach and author, Mike Boyle. Okay, thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I have the pleasure in speaking to Mike Boyle. So welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. It's great to have you, mate. So just going back a couple of years, the um, the Strength Coach Podcast gave the uh, planted the seed for me to start mine. So uh, got to thank you for that. Definitely for anyone for anyone that doesn't know who you are, and we we're chatting about this before. Um, I think it'd be pretty pertinent to go through your your background and things, given the, the little conversation we had. Anyone that doesn't know who you are, do you just want to take us through your, your background and uh, and what you're doing at the minute? Absolutely. So uh, I currently own a company called Mike Boyle Strength and Conditioning, which is really my major focus at this point. And and now we're in the we're actually in the fitness business more so than we've ever been in terms of half of our clients are normal adults. We still deal with a large number of athletes. We've always been kind of in the youth athlete business. We're probably one of the the longest standing players in this industry. We might even have started the industry, actually, if you kind of look back historically. We're going, this is year 20 in 2017 that we've had a private strength and conditioning business where we've had our own facility and we've gone through a lot of different kind of I don't know, transmutations maybe is the word of this of this business, but I started out as a college strength and conditioning coach back in the 80s when nobody got paid, and I started out in 1983. I was a volunteer, and I was a bartender, and I bartended at night, and I strength coached by day, and I worked my way up at Boston University into a full-time paid position probably somewhere around 1990. And right around that same time, I started working with professional hockey players, and that led me into a job with the Boston Bruins. So from 90 to 99, I did two jobs. I worked at Boston University, and I worked for the Boston Bruins, which is our NHL team over here in Boston. In 99, my uh, my daughter was born, and uh, actually, she was yeah, she's 99, so in 99, she was born, and my wife told me I had to quit a job because I couldn't work at Boston University and work for the Bruins and have Mike Boyle strength and conditioning. So I abandoned the Boston Bruins at that time and just did the uh, the university thing, which had become part-time. I just worked with our, our men's ice hockey program at that point and then kept sort of developing this Mike Boyle strength and conditioning idea. And then during that time, I started, I'd probably always been writing, but I, I, I wrote Functional Training for Sports in 2004, which I think... Uh, you realize the value of writing a book in terms of that probably put me much more in the national, international picture because now you've got a book that's in Barnes and Nobles and there's a whole different audience demographic that's coming in contact with you. And during that same time period, I was making at that time VHS tapes for Perform Better. So you start talking about being in the making DVDs, but we were making VHS tapes at that point <laughs> and on training. So I, I was a, an early adopter in that, and we talked about this sort of before we got on, 
and then I just started to do things. I was writing and I was making videos and I was kind of thinking, I don't have any idea where any of this is going in terms of having a business and writing and speaking and making DVDs. And it's gone all over the place. I've been all over the world to speak. I've been in China. I've been in Germany. I've been in Holland. I've been in England. I've been in Ireland. I've done a million talks in the U.S. and Canada. And I've been very lucky to be able to do this for a long time. I'm 57 years old and I've been doing this for, um, I'm trying to think, about 35 or 36 years. So um, it's kind of funny. I, I always tease people I'm a 35-year overnight success. <laughs> I like that. That's cool, that. Um, you've always, well, firstly, thank the uh, Advances in Functional Training was the first kind of S&C book that I got. Um pure S&C book and I loved it absolutely loved it and uh, that kind of paved the way for for what I went to do in the next couple of years that was that was great but you for me you were kind of always everyone gets labeled with the the so-and-so guy uh it seems like that anyway and you were the kind of um I don't know if this is this is probably accurate that the non-back squat guy is that yeah is that that, uh, that was sort of yeah it's funny that be, that was one of those things that because I think, and I always talk about over the evolution, we were probably back squat guys in the 80s and 90s, and then we were front squat guys in the early 2000s, and then probably, if this is 2000 going on 17, probably around 2010, we said, we're going to go pure unilateral. And the, the funny thing about it is that wasn't my idea. This One of my former athletes, a guy named Jeff Oliver, who's at the College of Holy Cross, which is not far from us, an hour from us in Boston, one time had said, do you think you'd ever just stop squatting? And I said, if I could find a way to test something to know if I was getting stronger or not, I think I would. I think I'd just go purely unilateral. And then of all people to prompt it, Joe DeFranco, <laughs> who at that time I think probably was you know one of the biggest go heavier, go home guys of that era – it actually posted a picture of one of his athletes split squatting or Bulgarian lunging, whatever people want to call it, what we would call a rear foot elevated split squat because it's neither Bulgarian nor a lunge, but that's a topic for another day, um, with 120-pound dumbbells. And I thought, wow, that guy's got 240 pounds. That's like him banging out squats with 480 if you just kind of do the math. And I thought, I'm going to get my athletes to do that. And then I'm going to, then I had the idea, okay, I'm going to test it. And people are like, how are you going to test it? I'm like, I have no idea. I'm going to tell them to grab the weights and do as many as they can. <laughs> and literally, that's what we did. We had, we grabbed the weights and we said, just keep going until you can't do another one. And we had some crazy tests with guys. And, and then we just kind of kept rolling with that. So yeah, somehow in the process of that, I became the non-back squat guy. But what I really was and what I've always tried to be is the guy who wasn't hurting his athletes guy. And and we had and it wasn't a big problem, but a, I always say twenty percent is a big problem, and that was about our number in American football. We would have about a hundred guys, and generally speaking, we'd have about twenty percent that were either not squatting or in the training room working on their back or doing some sort of back rehab thing. And we had this kind of consistent number where about twenty percent of our athletes would have back pain significant enough that they had to stop squatting. And I thought, that's not what I want. And particularly when some of them end up being some of your better players, because obviously just numerically that's going to happen. So that led us on this kind of journey of 
gee, how can we eliminate without going to leg presses? I mean, we tried belt squats. That's what people don't understand. If they really knew the evolution, they would see how much thought went into this whole thing, but they don't. They just, we get the sort of knee jerk reaction of, Mike Boyle must be this skinny little Richard Simmons looking guy who just doesn't want anybody <laughs> to lift heavy weights. That's sort of what it evolved into or devolved into because people were so upset that I was saying that I wasn't sure if squatting was a great idea. So yeah, so I guess that was me. So what kind of, what kind of I suppose backlash is probably a, a poor term, but what kind of backlash do you get now for still ha- having that tag and, and promoting not, obviously not, not back squatting? I think I get a lot less than we did. I think initially it was very, very strong from the mm-hmm. sort of the what I would call like the musclehead T Nation, West Side, you know, this because the problem with our field is that it's not as dominated as it was by people who participated in other sports, but it always was. So our field was very much dominated by powerlifters and Olympic lifters and strongman competitors because it was the natural idea of well, we'll just take the strongest guy and make him the strength coach. Like we take the smartest guy and make him the smarts coach. And that was kind of the the thought process early on. And I think what happened, and I I give Mark Verstegen credit, really. Mark was the first guy to really push this idea of we're performance enhancement specialists. We're We're not some dumb meathead anymore. We're not the weight guy. We're not a guy who was the best squatter on the team or could bench press the most weight and got put in charge. And Mark, I think, was really the guy who got out in front of this whole athleticism idea. And we were doing it, but probably, I'll be honest, I don't think as well as in some areas as well as what Mark was doing. I met Mark when he was at International Performance Institute down in Braden, probably in the pre-athletes performance, pre-exos days. And we became really good friends because we believed in a lot of the same things. And then we started to both have, I think, an unusual amount of success with our athletes, with our businesses. So I think more people, there's more and more people thinking what I would say our way now than there were. I don't know if Mark was ever as vocal about maybe not back squatting or not front squatting, but their their methods of training were much more similar to what I thought was best practices and I think that was the real idea was let's get into this idea of best practices what's the best way to do this and and not um, I use a slide in my talks from a book called Creating Magic which is actually a book about Disney has nothing to do with strength and conditioning but Lee Cockrell who was the guy who wrote the book said what if the way we'd always done it was wrong and that's what I've tried to say to people over and over again is well what if the way we'd always done it was wrong doesn't it make more sense to get people strong on one leg than two based on what we know about sport. And so I think we're slowly winning people over, but I think there's always those people, there are always the resistance who are still stuck in the, you know, they were a power lifter or they were an Olympic lifter and this is how I got strong and this is what I do. And I think there's less of those people that can defend it scientifically and that's what we are trying to do is trying to use the science what we know about anatomy and what we know about training to say this seems to make more sense. So long answer to a short question. I told you I'd be able to, I'd be really good at that. <laughs> no, that's cool. That's cool. So this, this it kind of brings me on to a point of how do you go about, um, 
kind of educating the athlete. So an athlete's been somewhere for 10 years, back squat, front squat, it's been drilled into them. They come to you, things are slightly different. This is not just in a squatting sense. This is in, I suppose, anything that's done outside what the, what's classed as the norm. How do you go about educating the athlete? So this is the one way This is it. what I think is really interesting is that I had very little resistance from the athletes. There were very few of the professionals, because most of the professional athletes that I encountered had been in these horrible college strength and conditioning programs where they were just forced to put too much weight on the bar and too much weight on their back. And when I said, we're not going to have to do this anymore, we've got a better way to do this, the general thing was awesome. <laughs> really? <laughs> like, I'm not going to have to do that anymore. My back's not going to be sore five days out of the week anymore. And I'd say things like, actually, my goal is for your back never to be sore again and for you to run faster and for you to jump better. And they would look and think, you can do that? And I'm like, yep, I can do it. I can positively do it. I can show you the data. And so I would say that we had really, really minimal resistance. The other thing that was very helpful too is the ability to do these things. So if I jump up on a box and I bang out some one-leg squats and then I say, yeah, just do those. And they can't, they can squat 600 pounds, but they can't do one squat, one one-legged squat like an old man. And they, cause that's the first thing I could see their wheels spinning going, that old <laughs> bastard can do that. And I can't. And you look at them and think, yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I'll ask them all the simple questions. How many legs do you run on at one time? I'm just curious. And of course, it's all kind of tongue-in-cheek, trying to be funny. And they'll look like, like, well, I know the answer. I run on one leg. And I'm like, okay, if you run on one leg, what's the point of putting all this weight on two legs? And the one thing I've realized with the athletes, most of the athletes, the vast majority of the athletes are actually intuitively intelligent, even if they are not what I would call book smart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you start to explain this stuff to them, that, hey, we can get really strong without using quite so much weight, the response is usually entirely positive. And I, I had, like, I worked two years in Major League Baseball in 2012 and 13, and I did have a couple guys who wanted to squat, and they were primarily older pitchers, and I let them. I said, okay, you want to do a couple sets of squats? We go ahead, knock yourself out. I'm not going to fight you about it. Because these were guys who were thinking, hey, I got to Major League Baseball. I made millions of dollars. I always did squats. And it was like, okay, can we compromise? I'll let you do back squats or your front squats, whatever you want to do one day a week. And then we'll do my single leg stuff the other day. And they were able to do that. So that was probably the only time I really compromised. We also compromised with college kids. If if you're going to college and you're going to have to do a squat test, then we have you squat. Because I want you to be ready for the test. I don't want you to show up at college and think, oh, I knew I was getting tested in this, but I never did it. So for us, sometimes in the summers on Wednesdays, you'll come in and you would see kids front squatting or back squatting. And some people would be like, what do you mean? Why are they doing that? And I'm like, they're doing that because that's part of their college program and that's what they have to do. If you asked me if it was the best thing to do, I'd tell you no. But I know my job and my job is to get you prepared for whatever it is they're going to ask you to do. So I need to be able to do that. So another another topic that's... um kind of splits the industry to, to a certain extent is Nordics. And I'd love to get your, uh, your opinion on Nordics and, and how they fit into first, how they fit into your program and kind of into the wider industry as well. I love it too. That's another Nordics. Cause it's, I have no idea where that so thing cool. came from. So it's <laughs> cause I mean, Nordics are basically partner assisted glute ham races. Mm-hmm. 
So I have no idea. That's like uh, Romanian deadlifts and Bulgarian lunges. How they became Nordics is is well beyond my comprehension. And then how someone could develop the Nord board that costs like forty grand for somebody to be able to do this exercise on and get all this data. And I think I'm a huge fan and proponent of posterior chain strength. And I think Nordics and or what we would call glute hams or partner glute hams or however you want to do your Nordics are a very, very late stage piece of the puzzle. And I tell people all the time, if you want hamstring pulls and you want people to get injured, start with Nordics. (laughs) They're way too hard. Most people don't have anywhere near the posterior chain strength necessary to be able to even do that exercise justice. So, um, and it's another one of these typical, it's being presented as sort of the cure-all because obviously, particularly in um, international soccer, obviously, they they have a huge injury problem which has been created by the fact that they don't have any off-season anymore and they constantly have another trophy that they're playing for. And then suddenly they're trying to blame, yeah, they're trying to blame the exercise. It's like, well, because we don't do Nordics. I'm like, actually, no, it's because you don't give the guys any rest. And because you've got just another, whatever, Champions League or Cup this or whatever. I mean, it goes, they've got like the baseball equivalent of soccer in terms of it's now a year-round sport. And and they're able to, you know, I love that's what we were going to talk about. You know, they're monitoring, they're monitoring everything when they're doing nothing. And the (laughs) monitoring should tell you that. Well, we've done a lot of monitoring, and the monitoring is telling us we're doing way too much. <laughs> and then you've got these same clowns doing, oh, we need to do, they're not fit enough, we need to do more fitness. And you, you, you're thinking, this is a terrible, vicious circle that you've created where you're just injuring your own guys. Because there's nothing more intense than the game. The game is the 100% mark. And sometimes if you're playing two games a week, I would be in favor if someone told me, if I, they gave me a premiership team, I would be like, we need to do less training. <laughs> we need to do more strength work. We need to do less work on the pitch. We're playing way too many games. And as a result, we've got to tone this thing way, way, way down. And that's so hard because coaches in general, the, the bad part is that most coaches are not, they don't have a modern education. So as a result, it's very difficult for them when things change. They have trouble adapting because they want to continue. Well, I'm going to keep doing this exactly the way I did it before. And you look at them and think, but the volume of contests has changed by, let's say it's changed by 50%. I don't know what the actual number is in international soccer, but 50% might be a fair estimate. And um, that means you have to modify what you're doing from a practice standpoint to be able to adapt to that situation, knowing that you don't have an off-season anymore, that you don't have time to get these players prepared. There's never a time when these guys, the time that they should be preparing, these guys want to go on vacation. They want to take a holiday and enjoy themselves, and they should because they don't have very much time off. But that necessitates a very different approach when you're in that early part of the season. And people still want to think, oh, you know, we're going to run them into shape. We've got to get more fit. We've got to do more running. We've got to do more small-sided games, you know, whatever your thing is. And then the guys get hurt, and then they come up, well, that's because we don't do enough Nordics. So we're back to Nordics again, right? And you're like, no, that's not it at all. It's because the volume is excessive, regardless of what you're doing or not doing. And posterior chain strengthening, a good posterior chain strengthening program, starting with 
single leg bridging and double leg bridging and progressing to slide board leg curls. That stuff's all going to be good. And then eventually maybe getting to this glute ham raise or partner assisted glute ham raise, the Nordic quote unquote, is probably going to be a good idea. But I think you've got to be very, very careful with it. I would literally like when we start doing it, we do uh, two sets of three reps and that's it. And the next week might be two sets of four and the next week might be two sets of five because we really want to manage the volume of that eccentric work that that is in fact the essential component of that Nordic hamstring exercise. Because most of the time, most people aren't nearly strong enough to actually execute the concentric part of that exercise. So if you get someone who can in fact really do a strict glute ham raise eccentrically, concentrically, that person's probably not going to pull a hamstring. But trying to get them to that point, managing that is really what's critical. So I guess it's just a typical overreactive, simple, so here's the solution. And as I said, the Nordboard people were able to kind of jump on that with a hugely price. I mean, when I saw the price of the product, I was like, that's insane. I mean, if it really worked and you said, hey, if you use this, you're going to eradicate your hamstring injuries. It might be worth the 40 grand, but if you take someone who's never done posterior chain strengthening and then have them pop into that kind of thing, they're probably, I think they might be worse as opposed to better or at least more at risk. And then it goes even deeper. There's a really interesting study. Uh, God, I should have pulled it up, but they were basically saying that they don't think this study that came out or at least was on Twitter two or three weeks ago was saying that they don't think there's any eccentric component at all in running from a hamstring standpoint and that it's all isometric. And it went into this idea. I don't know if you've read Bosch's book, which I've kind of fiddled through uh-huh. and not read the whole thing yet. But Bosch talks about this concept of muscle slack. And I could not, I was reading it and in all honesty, I couldn't comprehend what he meant by muscle slack. And then when this study came out about the fact that they think that there's not an eccentric component, that there's simply an isometric component, and then what we're viewing as eccentric is actually the hamstring taking up its slack, suddenly it dawned on me what they were actually talking about. And I used the analogy the other day in our staff meeting when we were talking. I said, here's muscle slack, and I showed them a rope laying on the ground. And I said, if I stand on one end of the rope and I pull the rope, I've taken up the slack, but it hasn't gotten longer. And that's probably what's occurring with the hamstring in sprinting is that in that swing phase when we're most probably likely to have a problem is that that time of taking up the slack and getting that isometric. So it may even be the isometric part that's more valuable. I think there's a lot we still don't know, but I I don't think – I think the idea that Nordics is the answer is probably – a tremendous oversimplification but more posterior chain work probably is the answer but how to periodize and place that posterior chain work into the program of someone who's already probably doing too much running is the the other side of that coin mm-hmm. so I mean, you, t- you touched on some little progressions there um at the start of that start of that answer but um just want to take us through kind of how you may program the, the posterior chain work obviously may don't have to end with Nordics, but as we've suggested, it could end with Nordics. Yeah. I, well, I think basically what we do is we talk about there being two types of posterior chain exercises. So one is the the 
modified straight leg deadlift. Again, the Romanian deadlift is what most people would recognize it at. I am not, again, as much as I'm, as I'm not a two-leg squat fan, I'm not a two-leg Romanian deadlift fan. We call them straight leg deadlifts even though there's a 10 to 20 degree knee bend. And we do almost exclusively one leg straight leg deadlifts. So we are going to hammer that one leg straight leg deadlift pattern. From a progression standpoint, we might start with something as simple as reaching and touching a cone and not even loading it when we've got an absolute beginner. And that beginner could be a Premier League soccer player for me. I don't really care. A beginner's a beginner. A beginner's someone who's not familiar with the pattern. And then from there, we would try to progress to a single kettlebell to two kettlebells. And then we'd really try to progress the load. And we would like someone to be able to, ideally for me, I want someone to be able to one leg straight leg deadlift minimally 50% of their body weight. And that's minimally. And I would love them to be able to work up to the point where they're able to handle their body weight on a single leg. So if a guy weighs whatever, 90 kilos, then I want him eventually doing 90 kilos for five or six reps in that one leg straight leg deadlift. At the same time, we've got the bent legged pattern. So what we would look at as our bridge pattern that we've also got to deal with. Because in the bridge pattern, the one leg straight leg deadlift pattern, I think there's more hamstring contribution. The bridge pattern is more glute contribution because obviously you've got the bent leg. So we would start with simple things like two leg bridging, single leg bridging, what we would call cook hip lifts, which is kind of a, some people call it a leg lock bridge. There's a lot of different names for it, but the idea of a single leg bridge with the opposite leg flexed progress that once they can handle that then we're going to progress that into a slide board or a stability ball leg curl i like slide board leg curl more than stability ball because i think stability ball is, is a little easier and a little harder at the same time because some people struggle with the balance part of it but it's easier because it's a little bit downhill we'll use our slide boards or our little mini slide boards or valve slides you know some sort of sliding glider to start working on that pattern if someone can't handle that pattern we'll work we'll start with an eccentric only version of that where it's basically bridge up let the legs elongate drop back down bridge up again eventually get into a concentric version of those we will load those sometimes with a plate sometimes with a band trying to get that stronger once they're able to do all that stuff and really show me really good ability to co-contract their glutes and their hamstrings and to use those things in sync that's when we might start thinking about that negative glute ham or um, assisted glute ham or something along that line, which is effectively your Nordic leg curl. And we're going to work our way back to that. The problem, uh, and I've got a, a fairly long tutorial on YouTube uh, that if you look up, if you just type in Mike Boyle on glute hams, it'll come up. Most people do glute hams and Nordics and a lot of these things, they do them wrong. The key to the exercise is that you've got to maintain your glute contraction. Because I always think about it, it's basically like if you think about that Nordic or glute ham or whatever it is, it's a concentric contraction of your glutes followed by an isometric contraction of your glutes followed by a concentric contraction of your hamstrings. And it has to be done in that sequence. And then when you lower back down, you've got to maintain that isometric contraction of your glutes as you lower that body down, much like what you do in the slideboard leg curl. So it's a fairly complicated process that I always say five degrees of hip flexion means you've lost it. If you can't maintain hip extension from knee to shoulder, then you're not doing the exercise properly. You don't have the proper, I guess, intramuscular coordination to make this thing really work. And then you're just doing stuff, which doesn't really have much value. <laughs> so another thing that's um, 
I don't know if controversial is the word, but a bit controversial, is the, the hip thrust. Where does that fit into this equation? Does it fit into this equation? Hip thrust does fan? not fit into my equation at all. So I would look at we could we would do a shoulder elevated single leg bridge, and for the same reason, I think hip thrusts. Um, when we look at them, I think most people get way too much lumbar extension doing that heavy loaded hip thrust, and it goes back to the same idea: bilateral, unilateral. I always, I'll always default back to the same argument. I very much like a unilateral version of what you would look at as a hip thrust. But I think, obviously, on the ground, you don't need a whole lot of weight. You can sandbag a unilateral hip thrust and get that what we call, you know, cook hip lift, leg lock bridge, whatever it is, and really limit their ability to lumbar extend and really force them to use their glutes. And it becomes a totally different exercise. But like the two-leg barbell loaded up, wrap a pad around. One, it's incredibly uncomfortable. I'm sorry. I tried it. Because the one thing about me is I never reject anything without trying it. And so when I when Brett Contreras came out with the whole hip thrust thing, I liked his vector concept and the idea that you need this vector because the hip thrust is going to be much more horizontal. And I was like, okay, I can buy that it's much more horizontal. But then we tried it. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so absurdly uncomfortable. No matter how heavy you get the pad, it's not comfortable, you know, between your iliac crest and your abdomen. You know, no matter where that bar is, it's not a very comfortable exercise. Then watching people do it and watching most of the videos of people doing it, and you think for years we've been cautioning, we've been saying, hey, a big problem with back pain is that they substitute lumbar extension for hip extension. And then we get an exercise like this where we load it up and then they substitute lumbar extension for hip extension. So you end up doing something. I would almost look at it as like the perfect storm of wrong. So <laughs> so we don't do it. But we will use the unilateral versions. Mm-hmm. Which, And I'm as big a fan of the unilateral version as I'm not a fan of the bilateral version. The unilateral one falls into my – this. Like, do you ever have those exercises that you look at and think, why don't we do that more? <laughs> <laughs> that's one of those ones that's in my why don't we do that more book. We're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Mike. I hope you're enjoying part one. As you know, all the previous episodes of the podcast can now be found at strengthofscience.com. So on strengthofscience.com, there's a little uh, giveaway. So just uh, visit strengthofscience.com, enter your name and email address, and there is a free access to a Dan Baker webinar that uh, Dan did for Pacey Performance at the end of 2015. So you'll also get the PDF uh, of the slides that Dan presented on. So it's a great resource, it goes on for an hour, it talks about his uh, his philosophy and his, um, his thoughts on fast-tracking players. So if you know Dan, you listen to Dan, uh, you'll know that the information that he gives is always top class. So make sure you check that out. So that's strengthofscience.com name and email address and you'll get unlimited access to that free webinar so back to part two with mike i hope you enjoy and i'll speak to you soon just want to move on to another i look just i just want to chuck the controversial stuff at you and just see where you go with it please do but, um <laughs> activation exercises activation with i'm um, just moving my hands in the air to air quotes there um what made me laugh recently i went to a, a non-league football non-league soccer game recently and these guys are probably, I don't know, eight, nine leagues below the Premier League. Warm up, small-sided games. 
just for the small sided games, they're all doing the circle, static stretching, doing the doing their thing. The bands come out, the coach chucks the bands out. And I'm thinking, where have they got that from? A few weeks before that, obviously Man City we see on the TV. This was probably going back quite a while. Man City on the see on the TV for one of the first times getting the bands out. Then the small sided game comes out at small, you know, nice tight areas, and the game starts, and everyone booms it long because everyone's shitting themselves. They're on a they're on a bog of a pitch. So that just kind of summed up my uh, my thoughts on non league football. But just going back to the activation exercise, it cracks me up when people see things on the TV like Man City, and then want to take that into um, non league football just because they do it, we'll do it. So I'd love to get your thoughts on activation exercises. Well, I think I always look at activation exercise. It's really my thought on warm up. Mm-hmm. I like. I think. I think you, the idea of trying to upregulate some muscles that you know tend to be kind of underperformers. If we think about glute max and glute medius as stabilizers, and we say, "Hey, we're going to do a little bit of bridging, and we're going to do a little bit of mini band sidestepping." Great. I, I don't. I don't have a problem with that. But I get if you think it's going to work miracles. It's not. I think it's simply a part of the process in terms of much like for us, we're going to always, we follow the same process. We foam roll, we static stretch, we do a little bit of activation exercises, we do some dynamic warm-up. But what we might, it's sort of, I always think of like activation, mobility, core control, core training. It all kind of is like one big messy bucket of shit, excuse my language, that (laughs) – they all kind of get like you look at some of these things. And you say even like we're talking about bridging. If I'm bridging, well, what's bridging? And I might look at bridging and say, well, bridging is a glute activation exercise. And someone else might say, yeah, but I think you know it's also really good to stretch your hip flexors, and it's also really good for core control. And I'd be like, yep, all of the above. Okay, with if we do a little bridging, we check three boxes. So I, I can come away from doing a little bit of bridging and be happy, in the sense that I did a little bit of bridging and I checked some boxes. I got an active. I activated a muscle. I activated my glute and my the activation of my glute, particularly if I do that kind of cook hip lift, leg lock bridge, whatever it is, I'm activating my opposite side hip flexor. I'm stretching my same side hip flexor. I'm working on not substituting lumbar extension for hip extension. If I do all this stuff right, I've done probably better warm-up than running around in a circle. If I do it and I think that magically the lights are going to come on really bright and everything's going to change, then I'm probably delusional and so I think you just have to look at a couple of these little activation exercises or whatever they are as being part of the warm-up and the idea that I always think even if we're wrong and I I use a I'm assuming that the, you have dimmer switches on the lights in England too although I can't attest to that because I don't really know but so you know over here we've got a light switch that basically can turn the light yeah. up turn the light down but the yeah, light's yeah. still on I think of activation exercises like using the dimmer switch because we know that muscles – activation is really not probably accurate. Muscles are never on or off. It's just the dimmer switch is down or the dimmer switch is up. And I think sometimes you can do things to raise that level a little bit that are probably going to be beneficial. And so you think why not do it, whether it's you know clamshells, which we would call sideline abduction. Again, I, I hate all the sort of weirdo generic names. But, um, but again, if I had somebody lay on the ground and say, hey, I want you to do some – some you know floor slides and some bridges and some bent leg abductions and and then get up and do some of your more dynamic warm up stuff. If in fact I wasted the five minutes of the activation exercises and I ended up finding out five years from now that none of that worked, 
I wouldn't have felt like I squandered my life. <laughs> so I wouldn't be worried about it. it. But in the same vein, if I had thought that this is going, this is the answer. No, it's not the answer. It's just, it's a, it's a little, it's a little teeny bit. It's one piece of the puzzle that we stuck in place and hopefully it's the right piece going in the right spot. And we're not going to look back later and realize, oh, that was the wrong piece. I need to take it out, put a different piece over there. So I don't think there's, um, in some ways it can be much ado about nothing. Again, you know, they throw the bands. I mean, I saw, I watched an NBA guy the other day do a horrible band warm up that, you know, was a huge waste of time. But at the same time, you know, I said, I'm like you said, I'm going to see every high school kid going through that same band warm up now before he goes out in the court. Cause he saw NBA player X doing it on, uh, sports center or something like that and that's part of the problem is we we do much more monkey see monkey do than we do thinking mm -hmm. yeah. and i think sometimes the thing i always think about it's like and that gets us back we, you know i know you'd ask the, the monitoring question it's like the monitoring thing if you're not intervening then monitoring is a huge waste of time if you are intervening then monitoring is not a waste of time but i look in and i always tell everybody like strength training is the first line of defense in every situation if your athletes are not involved in a strength program, then it's like the walls of the fort are unmanned here. Your number one injury prevention tool is not being used, and you can monitor anything you want. You can know exactly how many steps that guy ran, how fast, how far, you know, how many of them were full speed, how many of them were half speed. It makes no difference because then the only thing you can do is either tell them to, to do less or do nothing. But if you have that person in a strength training program and you think we're going to build your your resiliency, that's a really big factor. And in particularly in the, the you know, your football world, soccer world, there's there's a lot of resistance there. The resistance is coming down. Guys like Shad Forsyth and uh, Barry at Arsenal, there are some really good guys yeah, that are out there. Yeah. The guys at Tottenham are doing a really good job. They came over and visited with us, and I was hugely impressed with what Tottenham was doing because what Tottenham had done was sort of – they were disguising a lot of stuff as warm-up, but they had all kinds of great stuff that they were doing as warm-up. But in fact, they were doing little speed workouts and little plyometric workouts and little activation workouts and little – you know, there was a lot of little things that they were sprinkling in really, really well. That was so impressive, but it was all like they were being given these little 10-minute time slots to do some stuff, and they were making really good use of their time. And I think that's the key is if is actually having a prevention strategy. A monitoring strategy is useless if it's not part of an overreaching larger prevention strategy. And I think that's where some a, a large majority of the teams that I see doing this stuff are missing the boat because they don't have – and I guess even prevention, reduction, I like to probably the word reduction is better than prevention. We're not going to prevent injuries. I always say God prevents injuries, we reduce them. So <laughs> I'm just going to, I've got one, one last spanner to chuck in the, uh, in the works. And okay. that's something you've, you've, you've just, you've just mentioned a little bit there. And that was static stretching. Obviously polarized uh, opinion on the, on the use of static stretching, but I know you've got, um, You've got quite a strong opinion on this. And I'm where, a where huge <laughs> static stretching believer. I think everybody should be static stretching because it's another one of those things. I think anybody who doesn't believe it isn't doing their homework. They're not doing their reading. And the people who say you shouldn't be static stretching are always – they've trot out the it reduces power thing. And, and I'm like, I get it. 
But read the studies. It's very, very non-compelling research in every case. One, the reductions in power were very, in my mind, inconsequential, 5% range, which again, you start thinking about if you've got a guy, and I, sorry, I can't do, I can't do meters and inches, but um, if you get a guy with a 30-inch vertical jump, it's an inch and a half. And when you look at the constructs of the studies, these it, it was basically do a vertical jump test, static stretch, do another vertical jump test, something that you would never do. Yeah, never do, yeah. And so I, that's why I think the people who are anti-static stretching, I, I've been, I've been talking about this for years. I've said to them, go back and do your homework. Go back and look. And if you read the studies, and I've been a huge advocate lately for people, don't read somebody else's conclusion, but read the study itself and then see if you come to the same because same conclusion that they did because I think what happens is I think a lot of these people start the study with a conclusion already in mind and if they can come out and say oh yeah there was a statistically significant decrease in power when you static stretch and then you realize statistically significant was five percent seven percent and the construct of the study was such that Anybody with a half a brain would have said, yeah, I'd expect that to happen. So you, you just end up in a, in a very odd place. And the reason, the thing that I go back to all the time, defense static stretching, for years, I've always been a big proponent of going with my athletes when they're injured to the therapist to get evaluated. And I can't tell you how many times the therapist said, this is too tight, that's too tight, the hip flex is too tight, the hamstrings are too tight, their, you know, their internal rotators is too tight, we need to loosen those things up, we need to stretch those things out. And when they stretch, they get better. And I started looking at this and saying, hey, you know something, I'm going to be really smart. Instead of waiting for people to get hurt, we're going to stretch before they get hurt. See if we can eliminate some of that. Our athletes are so injury-free that it is absurd. We rarely see any kind of significant muscle strain rare it's really so rare for us i mean we go and i've done the data on some of the teams that i've worked with we've gone i mean i think my last year at boston university with our hockey program we had what we would calculate as 800 man games basically meaning there were 40 games with 20 players appearing in each game so the total would be 800 appearances of those 800 appearances i think we had three muscle strains where someone was unable to play and it might actually have been one guy who missed three games with a groin strain. You know what I mean? The same yeah. guy. So effectively, yeah. everybody else was 100% healthy. We did have collision injuries. It wasn't like we were injury-free, but we were very, very much injury-free from small muscle problems. The two years I was with the Red Sox, very, very low number of muscle problems, muscle strains type things because we had everybody stretching, everybody rolling, everybody – you know, going through this sort of what I would, I always talk about the idea of it's a recipe and not a menu. And in a recipe, you get a, an exact measurement of how and what and when. You put this ingredient first, this ingredient second, this ingredient third. You don't get to mess with it. That's how our training process is. If you go back and read my newest book, New Functional Training for Sports, that's what we talk about is this idea that everybody's going to foam roll, then everybody's going to static stretch, and then everybody's going to do their activation, then everybody's going to do their dynamic warm-up. Whatever power we may have lost in static stretching will be washed out, regained, whatever we want to say, through the activation period and through the uh, dynamic warm-up period. And we have done the research on that, and other people have done the research on that, and that shows that that's actually true. Whatever, whatever was lost in that short term 
can be very, very quickly regained with proper warm-up. So I think people who aren't static stretching, and the other thing, and I, as you can see, I, I can go on forever, but <laughs> well, the boat, unless you don't have, no, if you have no one that's hurt, okay, then get out and espouse what you believe and say, hey, we're doing this and nobody's hurt. But if you don't, then you should be doing more listening than talking. And we're in a situation with our athletes. I won't say nobody's hurt, but the health of our athletes is unusual. And I believe it is, in fact, unusual because we've got the correct recipe and because we've been analyzing these things for years. Because we're – whatever, our system, the Mike Boyle strength and conditioning system is now in it, you know, its 35th year. It's been a 35-year evolution from probably the, the Stone Age stuff we were talking about in terms of you know, back squats and bench presses and cleans from the floor and no one did a chin-up and no one did any posterior chain work. And I mean, you know, we ran, we did, you know, mile and a half runs for conditioning. I've done all this stuff. But I've evolved over a 30-year period in a, a non-stop search for best practices. So, you know, I've been able to... 15 years ago, I was down spending time with Mark Verstegen, picking his brain, talking about what he was doing. I, you know, I've spent time with Stuart McGill. I've spent time with Greg Cook. I've spent time with so many really good clinicians and really good coaches. I mean, Kevin Wilk, Gary Gregg, Vern Gambetti. Like, I've been around every single person and talked to them and picked their brain to the point where they probably got sick listening to me. And some of them I completely agreed with, some of them I disagreed with, but I've been able to be around all of these people at different time periods and continue to try to pick out the best and the best and the best and the best and what makes the most sense. And that's kind of, that's where we've ended up. So you mentioned the new book there. How does the, how does the new book differ from, from what you've done before? (laughs) Well, it's interesting. So the one that you read advances was really, uh, advances was an interesting story in the sense that I saw one of Dan John's books one time and realized that, a lot of the book was articles that I had previously read on T Nation and other places, on his blog, whatever. And so I contacted his publisher, Larie Draper, who's a – I love Larie. She's brilliant. And said, I want to do a book like dance. I just want to take all the stuff I've written since I wrote Functional Training for Sports and see if we can roll that into a book. And I sent her – I don't know. I didn't know. Maybe I sent her 30, 40 articles that I would read or written. And she made it into advanced and functional training. And she filled in some blanks. She's really smart. She had read my other stuff. And she said, I'm going to put a little bit of this in from functional training for sports and a little bit of this in from your second book, you know, designing strength training programs and facilities because we need to fill in some blanks and make it flow better. But she literally pieced it together and made it a book. The new book took the original functional training for sports, which and again, um, I can make a long story longer, but um, <laughs> I wrote Functional Training for Sports in 2004. I thought it was a pretty good book. I didn't really read it after 2004. I had probably had a copy in my house. And then in 2015, the a representative of the publisher, a guy named Ted Miller, who's one of their acquisitions editors, great guy, came to me when we were in China and said, you really should redo this book. And I said, I really don't want to redo this book. I've, I've got this other book. It's selling great. And he said, well, just to be faithful, you just reread the book and then we can talk about it. And again, out of respect for Ted, because I felt like he's trying to do his job. He's a nice guy. I reread the book and I about halfway through, I was like, this book sucks. <laughs> this is terrible. <laughs> like, who wrote this? And um, 
I mean, I said in there, don't, it says don't stretch in the 2004 book. The <laughs> foam roller, the word foam roller is not in the book. Right. Do you know what I mean? There was things, the word yeah, activation, yeah. mobility, those words aren't in the book. So I started to realize, wow, he's right. This thing really does need a, a refreshing. So I took the original text files, which I had, and I started working on them. And eventually it became really a completely different book. And they decided it would be called New Functional Training for Sports and sold as a new book. Originally, it was just going to be second edition, but it was so drastically different. You just don't realize how much you evolved in a 12-year period. You think that things are very much the same, and then you see this idea of, wow, we didn't even talk about foam rolling. We didn't talk about mobility. We didn't talk about stretching. So many things that right now I would say are central to what we do were not even in that book. So the new book has all that stuff. And then the new book now, because of the way publishing is, they're doing these enhanced ebooks. So we filmed, we literally filmed a whole day of videos, probably from nine to five. We just filmed video clips of everything that was in the book. So in the enhanced ebook now, you can buy it on Kindle for 12 bucks and get, I think you get four or five hours of video in addition to the book and they're all clickable links. So you can click on the, on the link in the book and it goes to the videos. And even if you buy the print book, the print book in the front, I was just looking at it today with a coach from Poland who was over visiting Um, on the third or fourth page inside, there's a code that actually gives you access to the human kinetic site and you can go on the site and see the videos, even if you bought the print book. So it it really is uh, in some ways, someone just asked me today about buying functional strength coach six the DVDs or the book, I said, I'd love to try to sell you the higher price product. <laughs> you can get the book for like nineteen ninety five and get access to four hours of video. I said, I'd spend nineteen ninety five, start there, and then if you want more, you can get more later. But you get a huge amount for very, very little in terms of the access that you're going to get. So where can people get that, Mike? Um, I, you know, Is Amazon in the Sound US. Hurt? I don't know in the UK, and I'm not sure how much of your readership is UK. I'm not sure what they're doing yet. Someone else asked me about that. I don't know. Um, but if they have access to Amazon US, they can get it. If you just type in new functional training for sports, it'll pop right up. I'm putting it in now. I'm going to do it now. Yeah, see if it shows up on a UK site. I hear, because I don't know. It's part of being an ugly American is that you have no idea about what's going on except in America. It was actually really interesting because I was in England when the election results were coming in. I was over at that Leaders in Sports conference, and it was really interesting to be in a foreign country when the American election was going on. Oh, right. What was the reaction? Oh, people couldn't, you know, they, very pro-Hillary, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and people couldn't believe that, that Trump was winning. And I had said to them, I said, I think it's going to be like the Brexit thing. I think there's a lot of people who oh, absolutely. are Take quietly, yeah. you know, they don't want to espouse their views, but when it comes time to vote, and I get up the next morning and people were looking at me and they're like, oh, you were right, you were right. I was like, I told you I was right. I said, that's just what I thought, but I really believed it. Yeah. So it was pretty yeah. interesting. Just, But it's just very intriguing to sort of, to see the level of interest in England. Yeah. In the oh, it was massive over there. Yeah. Absolutely. Huge. Yeah. Was it the same for Brexit for in the U.S.? Um, no, not as big, but okay. it was big. Yeah. It got a lot of coverage, but not like, no, not. I mean, every, you had every okay. channel was covering yeah, the yeah. election live. Yeah. Oh, it is on Amazon, by the way. It is, okay. So, yeah. Amazon UK? Amazon UK. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's there. Perfect. Then and everything, everything with the um, 
the podcast still going strong? Website yes. still going strong? Everything's feeling great. The strengthcoach.com site. I think that's the best. If people want sort of day-to-day interaction, strengthcoach.com is the way to go because I'm on there every day yeah. and I answer yeah. questions and I really am trying to put more time and energy into that site. And uh, it's it's been really good. So I got lots of good things going. I can't complain. Good, good. And and um, the standard question for me is where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, at mboyle1959. Cool. Nice. Well, I'll put all the links on the on the site for the for the book and the um, and the website and the podcast and everything else you got going on. Hopefully, hopefully, not miss anything. But um, appreciate your uh, appreciate your time, Mike. Really appreciate oh, no, I it. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you very much. It really is. Uh, it's a pleasure. No, it's great. Keep up appreciate the good that, work. Mate. Like I said, you've Thank been you. uh, you've been racking up a really good run of guests here. So I wanted to be part of that good run. No, absolutely. No, absolutely. Great to be to have you a part of it, mate. Good to have you on. We'll speak soon. Thanks for tuning in to episode 118 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. It was great to get a legend of the game in Mike Boyle on the podcast. Uh, always gives a very honest and frank um, view on his experience and his knowledge. So uh, massive appreciation for the work that Mike's done over the years uh, and the work he continues to do. So just before I let you go, I just want to remind you that on strengthofscience.com, enter your name and email address and you will get unlimited access to a uh, an hour-long Dan Baker webinar that he did, uh, which people paid for at the time. Um, so it's free access to that um, as many times as you want. You'll also get the PDF uh, from Dan as well. So hope to speak to you soon in episode 119. Got some great guests coming up over the next couple of weeks and I'll speak to you soon.